Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and today we have a guest I've been meaning to talk to ever since his new book came out. Uh, we're talking to Rob Copeland, who wrote a book called The Fund, which is all about Ray Dalio and Bridgewater Associates. If it sounds familiar, I have been talking about it for the past few weeks. And uh, Rob is a finance reporter at The New York Times. He was previously uh, the longtime hedge fund beat reporter for The Wall Street Journal and has also covered Silicon Valley and the hidden world of the wealthy, powerful. His front page investigations at the Bridgewater won a New York Press Club award. He was also awarded a bunch of other different things for his reporting. And he has now attracted the attention of the most powerful hedge fund manager in the world. Rob, congratulations on the book launch. Thank you. Since you covered hedge funds for the Wall Street Journal, let's start there for our audience, because I think our audience sometimes gets confused. At what's a hedge fund? What's a private equity fund? You know, what are other sort of, you know, more niche investment outlets? Just what are these things, these hedge funds? Sure. And, and you know, the the lines bleed between them. So it's, it's okay not to think that they're all, you know, separate categories. Essentially, a hedge fund, a private equity fund, any private investment fund is just when a bunch of rich people or rich or large institutions pool their money together and they try to buy assets that they hope will go up or they try to bet against assets that will go down. Now, what makes this different from say you or me in our 401k is that when you have these huge sums of money, you can do things like buy entire companies, which is what private equity companies do. And then what makes these managers so rich, uh, which makes them so fun to write about, is that what they do is they keep a percentage of their investment returns for themselves. So if, if you give a hedge fund $10 and they make another $10 off of it, they're not going to give you that entire return. They're going to keep actually 20% of that for themselves. So it makes it incredibly lucrative. And a lot of these funds get a significant amount of their investment pool from university endowments and public pension funds. Is that right? Are those like two of the big sources of, of money for a lot of these places? Totally. Because when you think about it, what are the richest institutions in the US? It's actually not something like JP Morgan. It's not a big bank. It's these large pension funds, these even you know teachers retirement fund um, where thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of employees savings are, are being invested uh, by one institution. Why do those funds give to the hedge funds and not somewhere else? I mean, I've heard enough you know, maybe this is BS, but like, you know, the idea that after fees, hedge funds don't on average perform better than, you know, index funds or whatever. Number one, is that wrong? And is that just something that people say that's not true? And two is if it's right, then why would these pension funds and universities give to these hedge funds and or why not just manage your money yourself? That's like the $3 trillion question. I'm going to give you two answers to that. I'll tell you what they say and I'll tell you then what, what I think. The pitch for the industry is that because a hedge fund can invest in all of these different assets, not just you know stocks or bonds like you and I might do in our 401k, that because they're making all of these uncorrelated bets, that is safer, actually. Because you know if, if the stock market drops, your hedge fund investment might not drop as much as the market. So that means you're getting access to what they would call an uncorrelated return stream. Now, in actuality, what happens much of the time is that hedge funds underperform as a group, but it's really fun to invest in hedge funds. You know, you get to go to conferences in Vegas and you hang out with these incredibly famous and wealthy um, investors. And you yourself might just be, you know, a piddling investment officer in Wichita, Kansas. 
So it's a lot more <laughs> fun to sort of hang out with hedge fund managers than it is to uh, just sit in front of your computer screen and invest in, you know, use Fidelity. Now, um, well, that's a good uh, scene setter. And we could probably talk an hour about the, the hedge fund industry. It's a relatively new industry from what I understand. Uh, but the biggest and most powerful hedge fund in the world, from what I understand, is Bridgewater. Give us a sense of Bridgewater and a high-level sense of, obviously, we're going to talk this entire episode about who Ray Dalio is. But you know, when does Bridgewater come onto the scene and why do they get so big so fast? So among those categories I just told you about, hedge funds and private equity, there's a type of hedge fund called a macro hedge fund. And that means that it's a hedge fund that tries to do nothing short of predict the direction of the global economy. So they make bets all over the world on, you know, the currency of China is going to appreciate if, you know, bonds in Malaysia will go up and down. And this is obviously incredibly hard work. Um, It involves a lot of research. Um, Some would say it involves uh, mostly luck. But by doing this, you can be investing all across the world. So Bridgewater, the world's biggest hedge fund, is a macro hedge fund. And Ray Dalio, its founder, sort of has become famous over the past 50 years for having an uncommon skill at being able to predict, you know, what's going to go on with, for instance, interest rates or inflation, um, not just in the U.S., but in hundreds of countries all over the world. And let's dispense with his record quickly before we get into the inner workings, because I think after reading the book, I was left thinking to myself, my, my, my sort of macro impression was there are almost eras of the Dalio experience where uh, it seems like for a certain period of time, they probably were doing something really unique. And that over time, they, you know, so many new hedge funds with sophisticated techniques and strategies came about and that. Dalio's and Bridgewater's performance uh, started to either resemble or underperform the, the other hedge funds around them. That was like my macro oppression. Is that roughly right? Like they were early on in their experience, they were truly anomalous. Uh, and then later on, they became more either average or underperforming the people around them. Totally. And, and this is sort of the oldest story ever told on Wall Street, which is that funds like Bridgewater they, they put up an impressive investment performance for years or even decades. And Bridgewater did incredibly well through, say, the mid-2000s. And then they become so large uh, and they, they stop putting up impressive investment performance. Bridgewater, over the last 15 years, although you'll never hear Ray Dalio admit even an inkling of this publicly, has, frankly, putrid investment performance for the past 15 years. But he's so famous and Bridgewater is so big and they're able to point to this long-term track record that, you know, if you look at them over 50 years, it still looks pretty good. Now, uh, we'll never truly know why they've underperformed. I mean, there are different theories. Like, you know, one impression in the book is that just like what they did in the beginning is just like, there's just too many other people doing it better. But I think the, the most interesting theory I'm left with is both Dalio himself and all of the people who work for him with a few exceptions down to the janitors were caught up in a frenzy over this sort of set of quote unquote principles that he had. That's basically what your book is mostly about is that there's this huge institution with tons of money to invest and almost nobody in that institution was focused on the investment part of the institution. <laughs> they were focused on something exactly. else. Listen, you know? <laughs> I'm glad we got to this because frankly, I, I really didn't want to write a book about hedge funds and I don't want to talk about uh, a book about hedge funds either. <laughs> um, it's, 
I had to set us up because people will be wondering why we're not talking about why they're a big hedge fund. No, you know, that's but, fair. Yeah, he basically, like, it's almost like if somebody gave me money to run a media company, but I love to surf. So I'm like, look, like, nine out of every 10 employees at the branch media uh, is actually going to be dedicated to my sort of passion for surfing, right? That's almost like what happened at Bridgewater, except except it wasn't surfing. It was this really strange framework that he had that I, I honestly can't do justice. And and why don't you set it up for us? Like what what's going on with these principles? And sure. Yeah. For thirty two dollars at bookstores across the country. Um, yeah. it, it does. <laughs> no, no, it's um, the, I, uh, the book doesn't really do any justice <laughs> to really what was going on behind the scenes. No, that's actually true. That's You're alluding true. to his book principles, uh, which we'll we'll get to. But so in the mid 2000s, Ray Dalio is already a billionaire. He's already got more money than you could ever spend. And he starts to search for sort of an overarching reason for his success. And he creates out of thin air what he calls these principles. They're what he calls rules for life and work. And so they sort of start at the beginning and they're they're, they're not insane. His, his theory is sort of, you know, we should be willing to argue with one another to get at the truth. And, you know, not everyone's opinion is equal, which makes sense. You know, if I'm if I'm going to the doctor. I should probably listen to the doctor's opinion about my health more than my own. But over time, the principles sort of metastasize into like hundreds upon hundreds of rules and metaphors. And they start to be something that is taken really literally inside Bridgewater and sort of as seriously as, as golden plates. And so for me, the most fascinating thing about Ray is that he's actually not world famous only as an investor. He's probably more famous as the creator of these so-called principles. And I don't know how much profanity you want me to get into, but like they're, they're bullshit. Yeah. I, 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 I've been formally thinking of this episode, you know, with a question, which is, is the world's largest hedge fund a fraud? And, and I don't ask that question because I think the investment part of it is a fraud. I think it's because this other part of Ray Dalio's existence, which is wrapped up in Bridgewater feels very fraudulent. And people listening to this might be, well, like, Hey, like, you know, you need principles. First of all, principles should probably fit on one page, right? Otherwise they become an operating manual. Um, how many principles are we talking about here? At peak, there were almost 400 principles and they weren't just one sentence each either. Some of them were paragraphs long. And I agree with you actually, you know, I, this book has taken me a few years and it's involved a lot of lawyers and the lawyers really don't like when I say the sentence that uh, the world's biggest hedge fund is a fraud. But the sentence that that I can say, honestly, is that Ray Dalio's persona and the principles are a fraud. One of the most famous men on Wall Street, the character that he plays on TV, in interviews, you know, in TED Talks and on Gwyneth Paltrow's podcast, it's a fraud. Right. Yeah. And he, you know, the amount of people who come across poorly in this book, you know, the list is infinite from Tim Ferriss to um, what's his name at, at Wharton? Adam, Adam Grant. Grant, good grief, yeah. Adam Grant. To all yeah. these people who've wrapped themselves up in this sort of blanket of the, the principles and have been a part of this fraudulent pro project. Uh, but to take a step back, so he's got all these principles and okay, so people say like, well, he's got too many principles, he gets carried away. Uh, let's start to go through some of the issues here. Number one is that uh, these principles, it would be one thing if he, you know, as the creator of these principles, lived up to these principles. But you paint a very clear picture that here's a guy who does almost the opposite of what the principles demand often. Like, especially like one thing that comes across with the principles is 
like the receiving unvarnished feedback, being open to that feedback is like so central to the culture he wants to set up in in Bridgewater, such that he will video he videos all interactions or he did um, that happened in the company and will play back very painful moments for everybody in the company, including a pregnant woman crying. Well, very painful moments for everyone except one, right? Yeah. His never get played back in. It's very clear from the book, people aren't comfortable going to him and telling him the truth because he will either fire them or, or punish them for telling him the truth. He'll, he twists it against you. When, you. when you tell him the truth, he says, what is it about you that makes you think that you have the credibility to tell me the truth? The book also has emails where people say, Ray, people are afraid of you. And he he dismisses it out of out of hand and then goes on TV and like you said, pays people like Adam Grant to um proselytize for him. Yeah, and, and you mentioned this thing called the credibility. So he he hires a bunch of expensive people, and it seems more people working on this than the uh investment strategy for a big chunk of the time Absolutely. from what I can gather. Uh and so he hires a bunch of people to create, to take the principles and turn them into a scoring system internally. And there are a couple of different adverse effects of all this. One of them is there's this, he wants to weight credibility high, meaning, Rob, you may work for me, right? I might be Ray Dalio. If I'm ranking somebody and I'm scoring them, by the way, like part of this is people are constantly, there's like a, a culture of tattletaling. Everybody's a hall monitor, literally, in the company, including to the janitors and the cafeteria workers, to the bus drivers. Everybody is being told on the entire time. And it gets to the point where you're being rated not just on your performance in your job, but you have to continually rat on people in order to keep everybody happy. So it creates this culture where people are rushing to tell on each other. And in some cases, having to make things up in order to satisfy their peers and their superiors. But there's a funny scene where, okay, so he hires this guy to say, like, we got to do credibility, yada, yada, yada. And this guy, if I remember correctly, who's creating the system, somehow through the system, it became clear that people in the company thought some other guy was more credible than Dalio or something. And, and Dalio calls the guy in who created the system and says, well, obviously it must be broken if, if I'm not the most credible person in Bridgewater. It's one of the, the funniest things about this book, honestly, is if you were going to create a very closed society, the wonderful Orwellian thing to do would be to call it radical transparency. And if you were terrible at taking hard feedback, maybe the best thing to do would be to write, you know, 400 rules about how you're great at taking tough feedback. It's like up is down, a right is wrong. It's unbelievable. And if it weren't true and still going on, I couldn't write this book because you would read it and you sort of roll your eyes and you'd be like, it'd be like one of those, like those Netflix shows where you're like, well, this is just like, you know, entertainment. But this is people's It does real feel life. like Black Mirror. Oh, there's a Black Mirror episode that's that's spot on. Well, do I have that right that he wasn't viewed as the most credible in the system and so he demanded it change? Do I have that right? Correct. It's one of the it actually he has this whole ranking system at Bridgewater of believability. So that, you know, you, Ravi, might be considered more believable than me in hosting a podcast, but I might be considered more believable in writing a book about Bridgewater. But that is extended from those sort of obvious categories into dozens of other ones, like probing to find the truth and all these other Orwellian terms. At one point, Ray is told that there are two other people at Bridgewater who are ranking higher than him at believability in important categories. And he says, well, the system must be broken then. Because I know those people and that's not what they're like. It's just delicious. <laughs> and 
you know, he creates this climate of fear, which is really hard to do justice. And perhaps you can pr- give us an example or two as to how horrible this climate really was. It really is like almost like a like a Stalin. I don't I don't want to use like hyperbole, but it's almost like a Stalinistic environment where even the people closest to him are vying for supremacy as his successor. But he never he never clears the way for a successor, and people are shiving each other left and right. And he hires the ultimate hall monitor in Jim Comey to oversee the enforcement of this. Uh, you know, I and mean, I would say like of all the people, you know, Dalio comes across the worst. I would say Jim Comey is a close second here, where he's investigating everything from like, was he there for the P episode? I'm trying to remember, was that Jim Comey who had to investigate that? There was some overlap there, but but he's got other um, fascinating episodes. Remember, that, so they hire Jim Comey, you're absolutely right. They call him general counsel. So general counsel of a hedge fund is a very boring job that I would not write a book about. Um, you know, you're sitting around looking at a hundred page documents about trading agreements. But at Bridgewater, Jim Comey is called the godfather. Literally, they call him the godfather. And he just starts pulling up tapes and investigating people for anything. He investigates a woman because she said she'd bring in bagels and she didn't bring them in on the agreed upon morning. This is Jim freaking Comey doing it. It's an (laughs) episode after episode of the book of Jim Comey acting like the Jim Comey that we all know and love to hate. Doesn't matter what your politics are. You find a reason why you don't like Jim Comey. It's the exact same thing inside Bridgewater. And he's doing it for $7 million a year. So he's thrilled to do it. <laughs> and so this would this climate leads to a bunch of show trials, right? Where people are brought out into the open. Often people can either watch in person, uh, but certainly are able to watch on tape afterwards. There's just like this repository of tapes of all these interactions. And what's it called? Please tell us what it's called. I forget. What is it called? It's called the Transparency Library. <laughs> which is a lawyer's nightmare. When I, I think they've destroyed the tape since, from what I understand. But they, they're they almost like these Maoist struggle sessions. Like, it's hard to describe. But give us an example here, like, of, of, like a, of one of these show trials um, and what this can feel like. So to understand the show trials, you, you have to understand one of the principles, which uh, is people at Bridgewater have to be willing to humiliate themselves to get at the truth. So Ray begins to put people on trial for even the smallest errors because he says there's no such thing as small problems. So with cameras rolling, for instance, he looks into everyone from the CEO to the secretaries. There's one incident in the book when you know Ray is at a urinal, and I've, I've been at a urinal, you have too. Well, I don't know you too well, but I assume. And it's happened in my life. And you look down and you, you, you he sees some liquid on the ground under the ur- urinal. And instead of doing the human thing and saying, it's bathroom, so this is the risk, he orders this multi-week trial of the facility staff and investigates who was in the bathroom before him and you know, were the urinals placed at the right height and who went into the bathroom and didn't wash their hands and who didn't call out the badness of the fact that there was liquid on the ground. And at no point at this paradigm of radical transparency and truth does anyone at Bridgewater have the balls to say to Ray, is it possible that you just peed on the floor. <laughs> so like, again, if it weren't true, you'd say, Rob, it's too much. And that's like these seemingly trivial, although what comes across in the book is that these facilities managers, the bus drivers, the cafeteria workers are nervous wrecks because at any moment, Dalio and his sort of entire clan of tattletales could set their sights on you 
and something like what you read about, which is all of a sudden there could be a new food provider in the cafeteria you need to worry about. And like, are the, you know, apple pies too soggy or yada. And, and it becomes less like a, you know, a gentle, um, like piece of feedback that you take into account and improve. It becomes this frenzy where people lose their jobs. They're on the hot seat. You know, Dalio, who seems to have all the time in the world, will stop by consistently asking you probing questions. You can never satisfy him. Uh, it's just this atmosphere where nobody's safe. Everybody is like an agent of Dalio. But there's no like, the, the interesting thing about pr the principles is it's not in service of performance for the hedge fund in any way that I can recognize. No, no, it's in service of what Ray would say is your personal performance. Probably his favorite principle is pain plus reflection equals progress. But the, the problem that you're getting at here is that there actually isn't enough natural pain in the day to investigate. Most of us, you know, I do things imperfectly constantly, but sometimes a mistake is just a mistake. So Ray starts to create the pain. He starts to probe people to upset them. And with the, in theory, idea that that will spur on reflection and, and progress, the lower hanging fruit at this firm, you already had hundreds of people, you know, watching out for what they would call badness and raiding one another. So there just becomes this problem of smaller and smaller problems need to be probed. And you're absolutely right. The people who got it the worst were the facility staff the cafeteria workers, you know, the bus, there's the bus drivers to take you to and from work. And people started investigating the bus drivers because the bus was either too hot or too cold, sometimes on the same freaking bus ride. Yeah. For people to understand, like, as I'm picturing it, you've probably seen screenshots of what this looks like, but you go into a system and you can see in real time different people logging criticisms of each other. And as I see it, they're they're not really logging that much positive from what I get, right? Like maybe you maybe this was not a bigger emphasis in the book, but it's not like that you're saying, look, uh, the, the bus driver is always on time and I love that about him. Uh, this was actually the one time he wasn't or something. But that's, that doesn't seem to be the tone of what we're seeing. Well, correct, because remember, it's pain plus reflection that equals progress. It's not positive affirmations plus reflection equals progress. These case studies, these videotaped case studies that Ray produces that are highly edited to make Ray look good, they're always about mistakes that are being made. That's core to the principles is that you can learn more from your mistakes than, than from your successes. And again, it's not an insane idea when I say it like that. It's in practice that it becomes so horrendous for everyone. The reason why Ray is so famous, honestly, is because he's able to describe it publicly in a way that we can sort of relate to. Like, it, wouldn't it be good if you could cut me off right now? Well, you could, it's your show. But, you know, if you could <laughs> cut me off and say, hey, you're rambling a bit. That's okay, that's a hard truth. And maybe, maybe it would be better if we could tell each other that. But what Ray does is he puts it on steroids and just for literally decades at Bridgewater just embarrasses and humiliates and frankly, psychologically tortures everyone around him and everyone is worse off for it except for Ray. And he fashions himself, and I, I can't I can't stress this enough for the sort of hardliners who are listening, who are like, good, we need more of that. I can't stress enough that he has walled himself off from any of these standards whatsoever. Like, so it would be one thing if he adhered to those standards and he's like this kind of, you know, football coach who invites people in and he's like, look, we got to tear apart the game film and we're going to do it together and all that. That is not the impression that I have. 
The second thing that I find interesting about him, and I think this is a plague that has been on our, our business society for decades, is that he, like many other defrocked leaders, has an obsession with Steve Jobs and, and seems to have pushed the this uh, Steve Jobs of hedge funds or investing or something, this mm. line that- Oh, it literally makes started, it up. Yeah. They, yeah, he, he makes it up and people like Tim Ferriss start saying it. And and to be to be honest, I, I don't mind Tim Ferriss and I, and I don't think like, like, look, I, I, I don't know if Tim Ferriss had the expertise when he starts saying this kind of stuff and inviting Dalio on to know exactly what he was dealing with. But I'm a little bit harder on Grant because I think Grant is a Wharton professor. So I feel like he, and he did a lot more with the principals than anybody really because he, well, and, and I understand there was a partnership. Let's tell people what Grant did, by the way. Yeah, let's talk about it. Grant is an organizational psychologist and he writes a whole chapter about Ray and Bridgewater in one of his books, Originals. And so far as I can tell, this psychologist who studies organizations, all he does is talk to the founder of the organization and to who the founder wants him to talk to. He doesn't actually look at Bridgewater from all the angles of the facility staff and the underlings and the people who had been fired um, and things of that nature. And then later, after he writes this very positive piece about Ray, he goes on the Bridgewater payroll. He begins to be paid by Bridgewater. He begins to, to go out there and, and be quoted talking about as he's a consultant for Ray's so-called principles. It's madness. I mean, truly, this is a Wharton professor. Well, you know, the thing is, uh, there's like a podcast mafia out there, Rob. And so I'm, I'm, I'm treading on dangerous territory here. But, uh, you know, part of the thing is he, Dalio, did this, like he did a really good job of ingratiating himself with all the big sort of public intellectuals that are out there. Like he became this guy who did the circuit, made a lot of friends. And it was on display when I listen, you know, one of my favorite podcasts to listen to is this podcast called Pivot with Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher. You went on there recently. And, you know, this is this is kind of treading into some tough territory here, but I, I have a lot of respect for Galloway, but it felt to me like Galloway was was carrying water for Dalio in that interview. Number one, he almost, he basically admitted he didn't read the book and it was pretty obvious. He literally he didn't read, read the book. book. He told me after yeah. on the air that he was going yeah. to order it. Which is yeah. fine, but but he called it a hit job without reading the book. I called my no, our chief of staff afterwards, or I texted her. I was like, "You have to listen to this because we we we're, we're kind of like you know as as Galloway and Swisher fans, we've been noticing, I would say, a lack of rigor that has kind of shown up over the past year as they've gotten busier." And I was like, "I cannot believe this guy had this opportunity because we've been trading your book. We think it's it's really insightful and important." And he basically hogs the mic and says he didn't read the book, and then calls it a hit job with no evidence whatsoever. This must be a common experience for you. It, it is, and what's, what's been really sad sort of is that Ray is a great guest. He would come on your podcast and you would say, we have the world's most successful, biggest hedge fund manager, and he will tell you the secrets to his success. And that is an intoxicating conversation to have. But the fact that all of these, I think, smart people genuinely just take his version of reality, hook, line, and sinker, and just put it out there is just it like you said it's a lack of rigor but why do we believe that he is what he says he is it's just because he's rich just because you're rich doesn't mean you actually have cracked the secrets to human nature and in fact ray was incredibly rich before he ever makes up for the principles yeah and i and i think it's probably safe to say that pre and post principles is it safe to say the fund performed better before the principles oh, than after? Oh my gosh, is it safe to say that? It's been almost a straight line downward for performance relatively. And we should be clear, I can't prove that, but 
you can look at the numbers and you can draw the, the causation there if, if you'd like. I've been surprised that all these people who put him on his podcast and put him on TV and host TED Talks, I just, I'm surprised at just the lack of curiosity about the fact that there's another side to the story that anyone would have told them if they had just picked up the phone and tried to talk to, you know, Bridgewater employees, because it's been an open secret. Yeah, let's talk about that process, because this is a very rich person with, I would imagine, incredibly ironclad non-disclosure agreements with heavy penalties for anybody to talk to you. Tell us what you can about how you went about reporting this. Well, first of all, I would say it's an open secret inside Bridgewater that Ray is not the character that he plays on TV. So it's not hard to get, once you get people, to get them to tell you the stories, because I'm not asking them anything hard. I'm basically just saying, start at second zero and tell me about your experience. Now, Ray and a lot of other financial firms tend to make you sign these NDAs, these non-disclosure agreements uh, that mean that you can't talk to reporters. But you have a federally protected right to speak out on workplace conditions. No um, piece of paper that your employer makes you sign can take that away from you. And in many respects, the only things I was interested in was workplace conditions. It was what is it like to work for him? How does he treat people? What are these show trials like? These uh, what are these case studies? And it took me close to ten years. You know, it's, it's taken me a long time to get people to trust me. But what's remarkable is that at Bridgewater they tape so many things that hundreds, if not thousands, of people saw some of these incidents that I described. So I don't have to find you know the one person who is in the room. I can often find some of the hundreds of people who watched the videos of it. Well, and, and the flip side is, if you truly were on a vendetta, which is what they claim, because you had applied, I think their argument is you had applied a, a while ago for a job before you became a reporter. Not even a, not even just a while ago. I, I Right after I graduated college, I didn't have a job. I think I applied to every job in the tri-state area, the New York tri-state area. Never thought about it again, uh, about that interview again until you know, 10 years later when Ray claimed I'd been on a vendetta. Right. So he, he claims you're on a vendetta, but he, couldn't he easily disprove it? Like through, I mean, maybe he's deleted a lot of these videos or whatever, but if there are that many eyes on these incidences, he could easily dispute what you're saying in the specifics. I asked them while I was writing the book, I've asked them afterwards, you know, if I'm getting something wrong, just release the tapes, just show people what actually happened. They'll never do that, of course, because um, because I'm right. And because if anything, I'm understating some of these incidents. Yeah, I imagine there's some stuff that didn't make it into the book that, that your lawyers have spiked. The, not the lawyers, to be honest. I, and I will, I will be honest. There are some people who did some terrible things at Bridgewater. But if you weren't CEO if you didn't, or general counsel, and you didn't, I think, invite the attention of a reporter, I'm not going to go in and try to ruin your life. I'm not going to name you, you know, you were caught up in this personality-based organization following these rules. So there are many things I left out of the book simply because I didn't think that just because you make a mistake in your 20s that, you know, your kids should be able to Google it um, 20 years from now. I did have a level of responsibility there. I'll give you one thing that I left out of the book, which is that there's a, there's a moment when um, a whistleblower inside Bridgewater tries to tell Charlie Rose the truth. And so he, he sends Charlie Rose some materials from Bridgewater. And what he writes on those materials is he writes, Charlie, you can't spell culture without C-U-L-T. 
And I left that out of the book because I wasn't going to say who that man was because he was, he was fired and no one knows who he is besides me and I guess his coworkers. And I didn't think I could give you this heroic moment for him and not tell you who he is. But I also don't know that, you know, his current employer needs to know that he was fired from Bridgewater. So that sort of thing. You describe this group around Dalio who are vying to become the next CEO of Bridgewater. Uh, and, you know, this is a classic succession issue. I mean, it literally is like a bad version of the TV show where each couple of years, somebody feels like they're the one. And he brings in people like, in some cases, like some accomplished executives, like a, a, a guy from Apple who it took him all of 30 seconds to realize Dalio is full of shit <laughs> and yeah. he, he didn't last very long. Tell us a little bit about that dance and, and then give, bring us up to today where uh, we've been reading stories about the cost it would take for people to buy him out and to get rid of him, et cetera. Sure. So he, he brings in a former Steve Jobs deputy because he's obsessed, like you said, with, with Steve Jobs. And at, at 30 seconds might be overstating how long it took John Rubenstein to figure out uh, that, that this was horseshit. But he pays this guy, John, the CEO, $50 million over two years and says, don't tell anyone about what you found here. And that's why he's able to keep it going. He's making more than uh, Otani uh, on the uh, the Dodgers. <laughs> well, he pays him up front too. Doesn't Otani have to yeah. borrow? Yeah, um, it's true. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. And then, you know, Ray talks constantly about how uh, he's not interested in wealth. He just happens to be wealthy, um, which is one of the great eye rolls um, as a finance reporter, the number of people who tell me that. Right now, he is technically, he claims, retired from Bridgewater. But... In order to retire, this man who claims to hate wealth put the firm through years upon years of painful negotiations that ended up with a package where Ray is paid a billion dollars a year just to stay away. That's how badly this firm wanted him out, that they were willing to pay him. He's already a multi-billionaire, obviously, an extra billion dollars every year. It's When I first heard that, I said the number you must be mispronouncing the number, kind sir. Like it, it must be $1 million, right? No, it's it's a billion. And, you know, one of his like chosen deputies, I, I forget this gentleman's name, Greg Jensen. So Greg Jensen's this guy who's hired on Young. He basically lives the principles, which is the way to get, to, to stay relevant and successful within the company. He rats out the right kind of people. At one point, there was this woman who is like his main competitor and he catches her in a lie where she was using her assistant to help her draft a statement. And then- Which by the way, how stupid are all these lies? How how yeah, freaking dumb, even as you're saying it, I wrote the book, I'm still like, I can't believe this actually happened. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to describe to the audience, you'll have to read it, but essentially this woman was in this like difficult situation. She had to draft a statement. She had her assistant help her with it. She was later asked if her assistant helped her with it, which would have been a totally appropriate professional thing to do. I don't know why, but she lied. That became a trial. And then this woman basically was no longer in the running for CEO after that. He would, he would basically knife anybody around him who was coming up. And he, he very much is like the Stalin to Lenin in many ways, but he, he winds up and he winds up deploying the principles for that. And this whole process, like that's well, he kind of uses, his- He tries, and if you believe he's a true believer, which many people do, he tries to use the principles to unseat Ray. He tries to use the principles against the master. And what Ray does, is he invents new principles in real time to use against Greg. 
This is like Star Wars. It's wild. Yeah, it's like new new powers. Yeah. And what was the principle? I forget this. What was the principle that Ray invented to, to well, take what him he, down? What Greg tries to do is Greg tries to prove that Ray hasn't been sticking to his timeline, his promises to retire. So Greg asks everyone to, you know, pull the tapes, all these videos and everything. And rather than let everyone do that, Ray invents a new principle. And it is only give the radical transparency to those who deserve it. So basically says, I'm not going <laughs> to let Greg put me on trial in front of everyone. I'm going to stack the deck against him. He pushes Greg down. Of course, it has to be a whole a whole cycle. And look, Greg is still there. He's a multi-billionaire. He's, he, he puts up with it for the money. And he survived a an allegation. Tell us about that, because I do think, I, I don't want to paper over what seems like a hostile workplace for women. Well, with, with Greg in particular, um, Greg was CEO and he organizes a company retreat um, where men and women are pressured to take off their tops and throw them into a fire to show their loyalty to Bridgewater. And he begins to have a relationship with a woman uh, who is his subordinate. And this eventually gets back to Ray. And the woman tells the truth. She says, yes, this is what happened. It was consensual, but he is my boss. And Greg just straight up lies about it and says that nothing happened. This fits into the book and to Ray's principles, because what Ray does is he looks at these two competing stories and he says, well, Greg has been rated by the system to be the more believable person. So I can't decide which of you, which story is right, but I'm leaning towards Greg and they pay the woman a settlement to leave and Greg stays and becomes a billionaire. Correct me if I'm wrong, there were a couple incidents you write about that are of a similar vein, which is, you know, a woman often, like, I mean, often you've profiled women who had some creepy experiences and they were often pushed aside. Like, it seems like this sort of transparency, truth-telling didn't seem to apply to their experiences. Well, there's one uh, incident in the book um, where a woman uh, says that she has been followed home by someone at Bridgewater. She says, followed outside the office. She said, this might even be considered a crime. This is, you know, stalking. And Bridgewater tells her, if you go to the police, that that would be considered breaking your contract because that would be giving up Bridgewater's secrets. You would be talking to a third party. And she also leaves with a settlement. So there are moments in the book where I almost underplay it because I think you can just see that fact and you can come to your own conclusion about it. She was told not to go to the police about what she believed was uh, what could be a crime. So what else can I say, you know? Yeah, I, I'm struck, you know, this is a trope at a certain point, but if you had written this as fiction, it would not be believable. And it's also in part, like what makes it a, a difficult story is there really isn't a resolution, right? As we sit here today, Dalio, the antibodies within the system, the Scott Galloways, the Adam Grants, right? They they are deployed in service of this persona. And what I found fascinating is your book has done well. Most people I know have heard about it and should try to get somebody to read about it. Like a good example is I had a, a, one of my buddies runs like a very successful company and, you know, it's kind of in the circles, like where, you know, his employees are being like, trying to be recruited by Bridge, Bridgewater and things like that. And I was texting him for a while because we trade books all the time. And I'm like, hey, you've got to read this book because- it's truly crazy what it's written about. And he's like, well, yeah, all these places are crazy, which is something that Galloway says. Like, they're like, oh, these hedge funds are all crazy. And I'm like, no, no, no. 
yes, I know that, you know, we've read Liar's Poker and we hear all these, you know, like even the Wolf of Wall Street. This actually makes the Wolf of Wall Street look like a functional workplace, honestly. It's certainly a more fun workplace. Well, I do try to tell people the book is not a bummer. You know, I really try to, uh, it's not just trial after trial, like people crying, although that is in the book. I think you bring up a really interesting point, though, which is if you look at the the most successful business books um, or nonfiction books, they're almost all how-to books about, you know, five ways to achieve success or five ways to hack your mind to live a better life. This book actually has a lot of those lessons in it, but they're told through this sort of horrific leader. And you, you can see how all these people give up their values, the values of their of their families, of their religion, of, of their communities to adopt their employer's values and what happens to them. And I actually think there's a lot of lessons here for bosses or even just employees. Someone I know who was texting me who was like, oh gosh, like he's like, I don't want to take a journey into this world. And then he read it and he said, I actually, he said, I have 80 people who work for me. I bought it for my, the 10 people who have direct reports. And I just said, he said, because there's so many moments in this book where a light should have gone off in your head that as a thinking, functioning person, this is bad. This is immoral. This isn't a, the way you want to act. And he's like, and you can see through the book how people are able to justify bad behavior over and over again. And yeah, Ray's still justifying it publicly. I don't expect that Tim Ferriss is, is going to have me on, particularly after uh, this one. Yeah, I, I want them to read it. That's what I want, because a lot of these people are smart people. And like to me, I treat Tim Ferriss a little differently, at least at the moment, than I do. And I don't know any of these people, so I have no nothing to defend. Then I do Grant, because I don't think, but maybe I'm wrong, Ferris has a financial relationship with him, but maybe there is. I treat it, like it's one thing if you're just duped, like, and you're just like, hey, like, here's this guy versus I have a, like, I, I can't stress enough how much Grant needs to answer for this because he has to have read this book at this point, I would imagine. And if he doesn't, that's malpractice. And he really needs to address it because he's the guy who talks about positive workplace cultures. His entire recent book, which really sucks, I have to say, is about how we manage the pressures of performance and how we need to put less pressure on ourselves and yada, yada. I mean, it's the exact opposite ethos of what's described in this book. And I think it would be a very powerful statement if this guy who had been so tethered to Dalio distanced himself. But perhaps he can't because we don't know what contract he, he signed in order to even have that relationship. And even more than that, he would have to admit that he's wrong. And admitting that you're wrong um, comes up a lot in this book, and it comes up a lot with, with Ray. Admitting that you have changed your mind. It's really hard once you've written a book, you know, the four ways to whatever, to say that one of them was wrong. It's tough when you've written a book called The Originals to say that one of your originals was running a personality-based organization, as the lawyers would like me to say. <laughs> That's a kind way of putting it. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, put it, I'll put it this way. The Bridgewater is a place that operates off the grid with a charismatic leader, according to a strict doctrine, with, as the book points out, harsh punishments to those who don't toe the line. I would also point out that asking Ray Dalio if Bridgewater is a cult is a bit like asking David Miscavige, where's Shelley? It's like, ask anyone else. The answer to that is not yes from him. But yeah, I mean, look, it's like Bill Gates blurbed his book. All these, all these business leaders, they just, it's one big circle jerk, to be honest. Yeah, and, and our, our listeners are going to laugh because I, I, I fashion myself an anti-populist because I think a lot of the strains of populism that are out there are fraudulent. But 
I don't know. Lately, I've been on a streak. I talked to Bethany McLean last week, who has a lot to say about these types of things. We, we actually briefly mentioned your book. Um, and we talked about how like all these years later, after she broke the Enron story, it's like we just are paraded with one example after another of bad actors. And they actually seem to have more impunity today than they even had back then. And there's also an, an arbitrariness to it. Like who falls and who rises? Like why Adam Newman falls but doesn't go to prison? Why why Elizabeth Holmes is in prison? Why Sam Bankman-Fried is heading to prison? Why you know why Dalio continues to be you know like a, a well-regarded human being? Like these are just like are it feels very arbitrary. I mean, why you know? did people care about Elizabeth Holmes to begin with? Is my grand question because whether or not she knew it was a fraud or not, you know, a jury decided that. But the product didn't work. It wasn't working, and we were just obsessed with this image of her. We were obsessed with the idea of her. And it's the same thing with, with Ray. The numbers will tell you that Bridgewater is investing has not worked for the last 15 years. But we're obsessed with this image of this billionaire who is passing along what he says is his legacy. And when he says it's been a joy for all of us, that's literally what Ray says, it's a joy. There's an audience that is eager to, to receive that um, and to just you know buy it. Well, Rob, this is a tremendous read. Thank you for doing it. And I honestly, like, I cannot recommend enough. I've recommended this to our audience already a few times. Go out and buy this book. I promise you, we didn't even do justice to it in this past 45 minutes. The details are truly where this book shines. Like, the overarching picture is what we've kind of painted here. But the details of how this worked in practice are really staggering. And my mouth was on the floor as I read this book. And I, and you'll read it really fast. I think I read it in like a day. You know, I had a billionaire tell me uh, a few days ago that he read the book in one sitting, um, except for a bathroom break. And I said, why did you take it to the bathroom with you? Um, so <laughs> I, I no, it, it is a... Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. Well, well, you got to be sure these guys like Tudor Jones are reading this book and laughing. Like a lot of these guys who had to spend time with him because it, it's a subtext of the book is that some of his peers, you know, kind of felt a certain way about him. Not just his peers. Everyone seems to know the truth except Ray himself and like and the willing masses that line up for his signature. Well, Rob, congratulations, man. Everybody get out that get that book, um, read it over the holidays. And uh, good luck. I hope you uh, keep on writing. Uh, and, you know, it's going to be hard to follow this one up. But uh, but enjoy the, enjoy the book trail. I'm sure whatever I write, Scott Galloway will uh, will dislike without reading. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shame on you, Scott. Jesus. Uh, OK. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. Thank you.